Did you know you're more likely to stick to a fitness routine if it's something you enjoy? Peloton instructors design their classes to be something you'll want to do instead of something you have to do. And it works. 73% of Peloton members work out more than they did before joining, and 92% stay active after a year. Peloton instructors are fitness pros and experts at guiding you through every workout, whatever your fitness level. That's because they don't just teach, they motivate. Peloton has thousands of classes from cycling and yoga to running and strength training, making it the perfect opportunity to experiment with new types of movement. Whether you have five minutes or an hour, you'll find a Peloton class that fits into your day. Plus, you'll never have to deal with the sold-out classes or awkward locker rooms. Workouts you'll crave, only on Peloton. Now the Peloton Bike Plus is its best price yet, at $500 less. Find more game-changing prices on the original Peloton Bike and Peloton Tread. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. Did you know you're more likely to stick to a fitness routine if it's something you enjoy? That's why Peloton instructors don't just teach. They motivate you through every workout. And with thousands of classes, you'll always find something that works with your schedule. Plus, you'll never have to deal with sold-out classes or awkward locker rooms. Workouts you'll crave, only on Peloton. Now the Peloton Bike Plus is its best price yet, at $500 less. Find more game-changing prices on the original Peloton Bike and Peloton Tread. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. Welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiaka, bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiaka, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiaka. Hello, my visionary friends, and thank you for joining us on another exciting adventure into future possibilities. This is Mission Evolution, where we share innovative thoughts and information with today's leading experts, bringing evolutionary solution to today's unique challenges. You, my treasured audience, are a very important part of this discussion. Email info at missionevolution.org with any comments or questions. We'll address them on the very next show. So take notes, sit back, and enjoy. This hour will consider, has the world gone mad? Spiritual sanity in crazy times. Often, someone who has navigated profound challenges will credit their faith or spiritual practice for pulling them through. It's been proven that people with a sound spiritual practice have more resources to weather the tough spots while helping those around them do so as well. With COVID-19 raging and all the global upheaval, if ever there was a challenging time, it would be now. What is spirituality? How does it differ from religion? Can we use religion to find spirituality? How can we find spiritual sanities to support us during these crazy times? With us this hour to ponder the grounding and centering power of spirituality and how to access it is Philip Goldberg. Philip has been studying the world's spiritual traditions for more than 45 years. He's the author or co-author of 25 books published in more than a dozen languages. His book, American Vita, was named by Huffington Post and Library Journal as one of the top 10 religion books of 2010. It was followed in 2018 by the popular biography, The Life of Yogananda, and his latest, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. 
his website, philipgoldberg.com. Philip, on behalf of our listeners and myself, thanks for joining us on Mission Evolution. Great to be with you, Gwilda. It's crazy time to be here, isn't it? It's crazy all the time these days. <laughs> it seems to be. It seems to be. Let's start by what was your educational background? Oh, I was uh, a student in the uh, equally crazy 1960s and um, got my bachelor's degree in psychology, went to uh, graduate school first in psychology, then to sociology because, of course, I wanted to change the world. And... Um, but never completed uh, my doctorate because uh, I was uh, attracted by things other than school. And my spiritual search began in earnest in those days and uh, occupied um, more of my attention than uh, schoolwork did. <laughs> so I transitioned out. Probably time well spent. What influenced you to study uh, spiritual traditions? Well, you know, as I said, it was the 1960s, and I was very politically active, very idealistic, wanting to change the world um, and end the war in Vietnam and all that. And um, But I was disillusioned also by uh, some of what was going on inside the radical political movements, and I was... Uh, confused young man trying to figure out how to live life and, you know, what uh, what career to follow, how to have uh, find happiness, how to live an authentic life and not the life that was prescribed for most of us at that time, which we were busy rejecting. And I was looking for answers to the big questions of life. I'd been raised by atheists. I had no interest in religion. And, um, but in that mix of young seekers, uh, there was a, a genuine search for truth. And, you know, who are we? What are we doing on this planet? How do we live a good life? Uh, how, how do we relate to the larger cosmos? And the answers to these questions came uh, for many of us, not from conventional religion or philosophy or psychology, but from the uh, ancient spiritual traditions of the East. And in that mix of books and um, uh, gurus who started to, to appear on the scene and uh, well-known intellectuals who conveyed these messages in uh, readable terms to us, um, I embraced those teachings, Zen Buddhism and yogic teachings and what we think of as Hinduism and Buddhism, but, you know, are much more universal than such labels uh, denote. And I was drawn to them. And one of the reasons I was drawn to them is that they offered a practical approach to developing an inner life through me methods like meditation. Would you please define spirituality? I mean, it's bantered around a lot, but how are we going to be addressing it here today? Well, you're right. It is banded around a lot, and in recent decades, it has come to be uh, uh, defined separately from religion, which I think is an interesting and, and useful development, because religion connotates or connotes uh, a, an organized tradition, uh, 
something one is part of uh, and 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 engages in community, congregation, uh, institutional uh, dogmas and doctrines and that sort of thing, which doesn't appeal to everybody. So how, the, how does organized religion differ from personal spiritual practice? Well, it can be, oh, it can overlap, of course. There are a great many people who define themselves as spiritual but not religious, but there are probably many more people who are spiritual and religious. So it's an individual thing. But spirituality, to me, is what happens on the inside. It's how we, as individuals, relate to and and connect with something bigger than ourselves, something we hold to be sacred or divine. Uh, Yeah, go ahead. can, Can one access their spiritual nature through religion? Of course, if they approach it that way, and if they're lucky enough to have a, a religious life, you know, uh, that uh, provides opportunities and methods for doing so. But you can also do it quite independently of religion um, or of any, you know, uh, exclusive affiliation with a religion. Um, be, you know, in these days, we have access to so many uh, opportunities to learn so many uh, different sources of spiritual wisdom and spiritual methodologies and practices that a great more and more people uh, tend to uh, sort of de-affiliate or disconnect from the religion of their birth or to hold it at, you know, at some uh, distance and explore more widely. So in this exploration, does it take us back to where we started in the 60s in the search for truth? That search for truth didn't start in the 60s. It's, it's, it's eternal. It's always been with us. You I, know, meant pers- I, I meant personally. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know, <laughs> I know what you mean. But, you know, I just wanted it, 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 it's, it's, um, it's the universal quest for truth and meaning and fulfillment and happiness that just leads us in those directions of what we call spirituality and especially to transformative spiritual practices that turn us within to our deepest source. And and in a sense, you know, the 60s was a huge leap forward in that regard. It was, I think historians will see it among other things, as a, as a bit of a spiritual revolution. Um, and I was, you know, I, I was a young man in those times, but when I wrote uh, my book, American Veda, I traced the whole history of how India's spiritual teachings were absorbed and uh, integrated into life in America, and the 60s was a huge part of that process. So so here we are in 2020, gosh forbid, um, and, <laughs> and everything's going crazy out there. Yeah. Did we have some foretelling in the 60s of this huge social upheaval that we're dealing with now? It, it, we have precedent, but things were different then than they are now. And those of us who were involved then and remember it then, you know, those of us who were political activists, those who became like I did a spiritual activist, trying to raise the consciousness of individuals and teach them methods of meditation and so forth. We could never have anticipated 
what was uh, what's taking place now um, because we just thought things would get better and better. And in many ways they have, but there's always, I guess, a backlash and always resistance to change. And there's, you know, something going on now that no one could have possibly predicted, certainly the pandemic. I mean, we couldn't even predict that uh, eight or nine months ago when I completed my current book, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. I wrote it in what I thought were crazy times last year. <laughs> and here we and, are. Right? And here we are. And everybody's complimenting me for my good timing, as if I could have predicted this, you know, when we, uh, <laughs> but, when but we scheduled speak, it. If you speak of spirituality, though, doesn't that connect us with all that is? And don't you suppose you were slightly connected with what was coming up, whether you knew exactly what it was going to be or not, in the writing of that book? I don't doubt it for a second. I, I um, was not conscious of that, but I was conscious of the fact that this was timely even last year. And that what I was writing would be timely uh, in, the, in, the, in a timeless sense, that what I was uh, uh, offering was uh, sustenance and good advice for any period that is difficult in a person's life. We could enter, you know, after... This message comes from sponsor Constant Contact, helping small businesses and nonprofits stay connected with customers, grow their audience, and do more business. With email marketing, list growth tools, automation, contact management, social ads, and more, Constant Contact helps small businesses and nonprofits reach their goals faster. An easy-to-use interface and thousands of integrations deliver big marketing results. Start your free trial at constantcontact.com we all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone mcdonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in this is your sign to thank them and if you're that friend this is us saying thank you now get a sausage mcmuffin sausage biscuit sausage burrito or hash browns choose two for 250 enjoy a large iced coffee for just two dollars Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. A combo meal. Single item at regular price. You know, next year or whenever, uh, a new age of, uh, of peace and harmony and wonderful collective life, but individual lives can always, uh, you know, experience uh, a bit of madness and difficulty and challenge. So these, do, you, this, do you feel that... Um, that the degree that a person engages in their own inner spirituality, that they have more resources, they have more resilience, and if so, why? Yes, the answer is yes, and that's the basic premise of my book. Because authentic spiritual practices put us in touch with what I call our inner sanctuary of peace. The basic core teaching of every spiritual tradition, or if you look at the so-called mystical branches of every spiritual teaching, certainly the ones that come to us from the East, which I draw on a lot, um, the, a core message is that the divine presence is what we are. It's within us. And this has and, been taught for millennium, yes? Millennia. And then why culture. do we find ourselves in this big modern mess if we've <laughs> had these tools around for millennia? Uh, if I knew the answer to that question, I'd either be a saint or rich. 
but <laughs> but I don't, you know, it, it, we, the collective karma, if you will, just did not permit that. We have forces that redirect our attention and our energy and our focus outward, thinking if we, you know, get rich or we have more acquisitions or we have more power or we have more pleasure through our senses, that that's going to be the, the secret of happiness. And you find the teaching that that isn't the case thousands of years ago. And yet people get drawn by ignorance and uh, misinformation and uh, bad uh, teachings into the direction of greed and acquisition and materialism instead of turning within. Well, we're going to, to have to pick up on how to turn within versus be controlled from without on the other <laughs> side of a commercial break. Philip and I will return shortly, so don't go away. You're listening to Mission Evolution, coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Hello again, this is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. To all our faithful and thoughtful listeners, we really value your opinion, and we'd love to hear from you. What do you think about spirituality as a grounding force during crazy times? Email me at info at missionevolution.org and give me your thoughts or questions so we can all share them on the next show. This in from a member of our audience regarding the episode entitled, Heart Connection, Moving from Instability and Discord into Balance. SS states, I'm so glad to hear a positive outlook where the importance of heart and unity are brought forth. It really gives me hope for our future. Thanks, SS. Our guest, Howard Martin, and his group at HeartMath are indeed doing some wonderful, much-needed work to steward us through these chaotic times. Curious, dear audience? Visit our archives at missionevolution.org. Listen to the episode entitled Heart Connection, Moving from Instability and Discord into Balance, and let us know what you think. With us this hour, discussing stability through spirituality, is Philip Goldberg. His website, philipgoldberg.com. Philip, we were just getting into, you know, these these tools, and profound tools, have been around in every culture since practically the dawning of time, and here we are thrashing around like a bunch of spoiled infants. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how else to put it, right? So, how how did we get so far off course well, it's the story of humanity, really. There's always these great founders of the of world spiritual movements and traditions, some of which evolve into, you know, world religions, some of which remain small. And these are gifted people who have penetrating insight into the nature of life and, to, and the nature of what we are and what brings about a fulfilled and happy life. And they teach, and over time, the teachings get distorted by people who are not as evolved or as wise as the founders, and uh, distortions enter into it, misconceptions, 
and so on and so forth. And the next thing you know, we're mired in ignorance once again. Look, I mean, we're, look, here we are. Look yeah. what look what's being done in, in the name of, of Jesus compared to, you know, what he was teaching 2000 years ago. And the same is true of other founders. So what you've, you've studied a lot of spiritual practices. Have you found something that they all have in common? The most profound, of course, there's a huge variety of spiritual practices. The most powerful and effective ones are the ones that put you in touch with the true nature of yourself. The, and the true nature of the self is infinite and eternal and uh, possessed of deep inner uh, and lasting inner peace compassion, love, unity, and all the things we associate with uh, goodness and spirituality. It's within us. So the best practices turn you in that direction and bring out from within you those qualities. Well, there's this this paradox or paradox going on. It's like in order to find those things, I would suspect you need to turn to your true nature. To turn to your true nature, you need to follow your joy. However, <laughs> that's a lot of what people think they're doing out there is following their joy, getting more, buying more, being narcissistic. How can we turn that around? Um, it, it, for one thing, anybody who gets who realizes that all the outer pleasures are temporary and many of them lead in the opposite direction they lead to more craving and more frustration and uh, uh, more yearning for something new and something different once you realize that that's the nature of the outer life that all the pleasures all the phenomena all the successes are transient and that we're all searching for something more permanent, something more stable. Once you get the message that that's to be found within us, within you, then you can find the methods that help bring that about. And it doesn't negate having a successful career, enjoying the pleasures of life and all that. It enhances that. And it brings the inner and outer together. But, Philip, how much uh, garbage that's been collected, not just in our <laughs> lifetimes, but, you know, throughout our lineage, do we have to wade through before we can actually access that true nature? No, because it's our true nature. And that's where the techniques, the spiritual practices come in. You don't have to, you know, wade through anything. You don't have to, it doesn't take a long amount of time. These practices uh, can work instantaneously. They work in the moment and they bypass a lot of that stuff and help to heal a lot of that stuff. You know, we're all, you know, wounded souls and we have, you know, the residue of the past and our conditioning and our traumatic experiences and everything else. But spiritual practices are useful in healing all of that at the same time infusing a So if we are uh, indeed bypassing, how can we heal it if we bypass it? I, 
Now, I don't like the word bypass, so I wish I could go rewind and use a different word. But because bypass has other connotations, it doesn't mean you ignore the stuff. You, it just means you deal with it in a different way at other times. Spiritual practices can take us directly to our deepest inner resources, to what I'm calling in my book, uh, the sanctuary of inner peace and a fortress of strength. That's just our nature. And, and methods like meditation uh, bring us directly to that. By okay, just, so let me, yeah. let me see if I got this right. So by accessing through the different techniques from different spiritual practices, um, our inner sanctum, we start to better recognize what not, is not part of that and are therefore able to clear it or heal that, it? That's one thing that happens. And some, and, and some practices have have an effect directly on the uh, brain and the nervous system. And so um, there's a healing that takes place without necessarily, without us necessarily having to be conscious of what's being healed and how it's being healed. And everybody can experience that. People who go to yoga classes experience it. People who go to church or synagogue will experience it in that moment. They come out feeling uh, exalted and uh, maybe even ecstatic or certainly at, at more peace and harmony. It doesn't always last, but there is that temporary healing that gives us a clue to what's possible. And so it's, it's a reattunement, a realignment with There is, with yes, you could call it that. You could certainly call it that. It's sure. an ongoing realignment. That's why I recommend uh, spiritual practice on a regular basis. So we have the two different kinds of spiritual practice. I'm sure there's more than that. But anyway, there's the individual practice, and then there's the group practice. Mm. Um, does one replace the other? Does one get in the way of the other? Or how can you um, I think two work together? They're mutually enhancing. And every, or I should say not every, but most of the more profound spiritual teachings will tell you to do both. You will have individual spiritual practices, your meditation, your mindfulness, your prayers, your chanting, whatever it is you do on your own daily as routine and so forth. And you have the congregational aspect, what in in uh, the East is called Sangha, the community of, of fellow devotees or seekers. And both are very important uh, because we're, we're essentially alone on the spiritual path and in charge of our spiritual lives. We're the captains of our spiritual ships, but we can't really do it alone. We need guidance from people who know more than we do. We need spiritual companionship and in many cases, uh, spiritual community, however, you know, organized they may be. That suits our needs and our personality. So there's no conflict between those two unless you're in the wrong community and, and it discourages your individual practices or seeking. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, I, you can't be around and not look out there and realize that, again, anything that has power is you know, available to be exploited. And people have found <laughs> the power in religion and then started to use it in exploitive manners. How can you avoid getting hooked into that? That's a very good question. And it, your observation is certainly uh, true historically. And uh, it's a very sad 
very, very sad story that some of the worst aspects of human nature have come out in religions founded by some of the wisest and most evolved human beings. But at the same time, uh, that gives us the opportunity to seek outside those institutions. And for people who are drawn to spiritual organizations, uh, I actually write about this in Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. I have a chapter on the importance of relationship in uh, uh, feeding our spiritual lives in, in crazy times. And one of the uh, subsections is about um, using your discernment when it comes to spiritual communities, because all spiritual communities, no matter how lofty and, and uh uh, elevating their message are composed of human beings and most human beings are flawed and uh, so the institutions are also going to have their dysfunctions and their uh, flaws and, and they're going to be sources of great nourishment and sustenance on the one hand and perhaps frustration and uh, animosity and uh, challenge on the other hand. So each of us has to keep an open mind when we get involved in those institutions, make sure they're truly serving us, make sure they don't demand of us a level of conformity that we're not comfortable with, make sure they don't ostracize people who raise difficult questions, and uh, disallow doubts and claim to be the only one true answer. Those are, to me, the warning signs of something that would um, work against the individual spiritual uh, search for what works best for us. So, in other words, there comes a point where we digress from um, community and communal spirituality into dogma and control. Yes, it can happen. And it does happen. And uh, uh, we're going to be out of time in this segment shortly. But um, so next segment, I'd much like to go much deeper into this issue. But it does not. Being able to access our inner sanctum, our inner knowing, help us discern what group is appropriate for us and for how long and when and where and why? Absolutely, yes. No question about it. It improves our uh, a good, deep, Meditative practice will in, uh, enhance our uh, capacity for discernment uh, on all levels, including that one. So it's like if you are in alignment with yourself, things that are not in alignment with what's going to serve you spiritually will be very jarring energetically. That, Is that correct? That, that's a good way of putting it. You will feel uncomfortable. You will feel discordant. You will feel something's wrong here. And you may be able to identify exactly what that is. And one good test is, can you, in a reasonable way, discuss this with, the, uh, of, with your fellow members or with the authority figures? Uh, or is, will you be ostracized for even bringing up the question? And that, to me, is a red flag. Yeah, that's that's a real telling point, isn't it? If if it can't yeah. stand underneath scrutiny and question, well, then it's on a foundation of sand. Yeah, and and you're being asked to believe in something and conform to something on on uh, the the word of authority figures that you you may not find trustworthy. Boy, isn't that the key? Untrustworthy authority. I think that that's probably kind of characterizing our year this year, isn't it? 
<laughs> on many levels, yes. Well, we're going to have to pick up on this on the other side of a commercial break. Philip and I will return to our discussion shortly, so you stay right there. This is Mission Evolution. We're coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution. Did you know our entire Leading Edge Information Packed episode collection is available to listen or download with our compliments? Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. Our special guest this hour is Philip Goldberg. We're speaking about the importance of spirituality during times of chaos. His website, philipgoldberg.com. Phil, you speak of um, an inventory of spiritual practices. What do you mm. mean by that? Well, um, I think the uh, a, a critical factor in uh, applying spiritual practice to our lives, especially during crazy times, is to is to find uh, a, a practices that draw you inward to your inner peace and use them on a regular basis. In addition. There's a huge variety of practices of, of different kinds that I uh, advocate that people acquire by, you know, searching and experimenting and trying things out, whether they're physical practices like yoga exercises and deep breathing practices and other calming exercises whether they're devotional practices like prayer or chanting or the singing of hymns or doing of rituals, uh, whether they're practices uh, you could do individually or with other people, whether they're practices that take you into nature and, and the outdoors or uh, that uh, move us uh, through the arts uh, and music. There's a huge variety, and what I'm proposing to people is to deliberately create an inventory, and I suggest doing it, uh, organizing it according to how much time you might have available at any moment, from a, a, a minute or two to five minutes to 20 minutes, et cetera, et cetera, in blocks. I, I outline them in the book, my suggestions for it. And, and so that you have them at hand, even if they're, you know, you say, oh, let me look at my list. I'm, I'm in turmoil at the moment. I've just got very upset by something. I need a break, I, but I only have five minutes. What can I do? Mm-hmm. And after okay. a while, you don't need the list. You just know, you know, there's things that suit the mood and the moment that could bring you back and give you access to that inner peace within you. So it's like a spiritual um, toolkit. Like a toolkit. Like, a, you know, okay. I use the image of a pantry. You open the door and you see the ingredients that are available to you. Okay, so when you are um, 
wrapped around the axle, so to speak, and, and really upset. And you know that you need to come back to center and you have limited time. Do you have one quick fix that people can use? You know, there's um, the old folk saying that, you know, when you're upset, take a deep breath, just pause. And that's one. One thing we could do in the moment that's relatively inconspicuous, and it works. It sounds like a cliche. But there's ways of taking that deep breath that can enhance the calming effect. And so I have different suggestions in the book, but one of them is to breathe by extending the abdomen further than you than just breathing through your chest. And that allows more of the uh, oxygen into the lungs. And then if you can, if inconspicuously, if you're, or if you're on your own, then hold the breath for a few counts. And then when you exhale, exhale longer than normal. Exhale about 50% longer than the time of your inhale. And there's physiological studies. This is old yoga tradition, but it's also, you know, been verified by a scientist that this ratio of, say, a four count breath in and a four count hold and then a six count or an eight count exhale to remove all the stale carbon dioxide has an effect instantaneously on the nervous system that's calming. And so that's one thing we can do. I know breath is, is something that's just used universally. Um, you know, now it's talk, okay, if you're, if you're getting up to speak in front of people, take that moment, take that deep breath, and then walk out on the stage. I mean, it's, it's been used so much, and yet it's still so effective. Yes. Um, what do you think the, the mechanics are behind that effectiveness? Is it, is it just the more or less carbon dioxide, more oxygen, or is there something else going on there? It, there's something involving the, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, and specifically with respect to this exhale, the vagus nerve. I, I, you know, it would be boring to go into the whole physiology of it, but it's easily, you know, uh, looked up online or in my book. And, and it, it's just, you know, a physiological reaction. It's one of our survival mechanisms you know, that was built in, you know, we have this famous flight fight response when, when stress happens, when things are threatening, but there's this other thing of the pause, the waiting, the not fighting or fleeing, but to just gather ourselves. That's also a survival mechanism. And we can choose to use that when appropriate. So it serves as a reset again, so that we can choose what we do rather than re react. Yes, and everybody has had the experience of getting upset by something and being uh, overcome by emotion, anger, fear, or whatever, and in and acting in that moment and then regretting it because we say something, do something uh, that you know doesn't help the situation and may even make it worse. Whereas if we hold on, if we in addition to the deep breath, there's other things that one can do. And simply just feeling the physical sensations that go along with this emotional and psychological upheaval, just feeling it. And science, scientific research indicates that the sensations that come with it 
tend to subside rather quickly and within 90 seconds play themselves out so that just waiting, just feeling it and not acting, so how that much, alone helps. How much of taking that breath, um, even holding it and then letting it out, how much of that has to do with bringing us into the present moment so we can ascertain if we're responding to an old trigger versus what's happening in the now? That's certainly part of it. And another way of doing that, in addition to the deep breath, is to to be in the moment by um, engaging the senses, by putting your attention on a sensory feeling, to move it away from what's going on inside your mind and, and your feelings. And <clears throat> of the senses, the sense of touch is often uh, the, the quickest and most immediate way of bringing our attention to the present moment. You, you, you touch something. If you're driving, you know, take your free hand and, and uh, hold the steering wheel. Feel what that feels like. Put it on your, on your clothing. Feel what the clothing feels like. Uh, many people carry a, a, an amulet or a sacred object for times like that, and they'll, they'll hold it, and it, it has special meaning to them, but it's the physical sensation of touch that brings us into the present and allows the uh, upsetting sensations to diminish. So that's and what the old-fashioned that, that's what yeah, the old worry stones were all, all about. That's right. And, mm -hmm. and the mala beads and that sort of thing, they have that additional purpose in addition to being uh, used as uh, 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 objects for spiritual practice. And you could say, well, these are, you know, these are good tips from uh, that a psychologist might tell you or that a doctor might tell you. Uh, why are they spiritual? Well, like a lot of other things, like listening to music or taking a walk in the woods or uh, you know, playing with your children, you can look at them in a secular, ordinary way, or you can, they can be sacred to you. And so if these are spiritual practices, if, the, if you hold them in that light, um, then, that, then they're spiritual. But well, aren't, they aren't are we ultimately? Aren't we yeah, ultimately but, what creates sanctuary and uh, sacredness is our exactly. attitude towards them. Yeah, that's right. And anything that puts you in touch with the peace within you and that center of stability and calm and happiness is by definition something spiritual. And if that means a deep breath, if it means you know, uh, listening to your favorite song, if it means uh, holding an object to calm down, then it becomes part of a spiritual repertoire, just as much as prayer or uh, any of the other uh, things we normally consider spiritual. Well, it seems to me like one of the things that are hallmarking our, our chaotic times is we're being controlled by things outside of ourselves and responding in ways according to our triggers, according to um, propaganda, according to gosh knows what else, but not from our center. Can these spiritual practices bring us back into a place where we can control ourselves rather within, rather than being controlled by something without Yes, you're, you're, you're expressing a lot of uh, the reason 
for writing my book and a lot of you know the things I say in a in a in a very cogent way, and that's part of the value of of the spiritual practices. We begin to not only recognize that we have all these resources within us and that we can bring into our uh, conscious command so that we can control not only our environments in a more constructive way, but perhaps even more important, take charge of our own response to what's going on. We can't avoid what's going on around us. We're part of society. We're part of a family. We're part of a culture. We're part of a historical moment, and we're going to be affected by it. But we can control how we perceive the situation and how we react to it. There's wonderful uh, examples of this, even um, in, in the most dire situations like the Holocaust and concentration camps where people realize no matter what's going on, I, I'm still in charge of my inner life. I have freedom on some level. I have the freedom of thought, the freedom of perception, the freedom of how I frame and understand what's going on and therefore how I react to it. And that's a tremendous blessing. I know there was huge studies done, uh, particularly with uh, POWs during the t- uh, Vietnam era. And the ones that, they could even be locked in a coffin-sized box. The ones that had an inner sanctum, an inner practice, were the ones that came out in a lot better shape than the ones that did not. So this has been proven again and again and again and again, and yet we bypass it. We don't use it. We, we don't recognize it. I, I don't understand this big gap between our inner, <laughs> our, inner, our inner landscape and how we respond in the world. And the gap seems to be getting larger. Well, there are always exceptions to that. And people who have a deep spiritual practice and longstanding attentiveness to this, the inner life are better at it than those who don't have that. I'm better at it now than I was, you know, decades ago when I, you know, was being battered around by whatever was going on in the world. I'm better at reacting. I'm better at, you know, my the, controlling my reactions to things. I have what uh, the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the earliest sources mm-hmm. of inspiration in my life. Yes, it was a wonderful uh, and it, it, it talked about yogis, you know, having acquiring the capacity to have equanimity in loss and gain, in victory and defeat, and in pleasure and pain. So, in other words, whatever's going on around you, you're all, there's always going to be ups and downs in life, but you can develop the capacity to maintain inner stability, inner peace, equilibrium, and despite so that- what's going on. That is what we'll spend the last segment going into because I think it's the key. However, it is time for another commercial break. Philip and I will be back shortly to continue our discussion. Don't go away. This is Mission Evolution on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net.
welcome back. This is Mission Evolution, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. I love to hear from our audience. Your thoughts are very important to me. To suggest a topic or guest that you think would be of interest, email us, info at missionevolution.org. Speaking of gifted people of service, this hour we're sharing thoughts with Philip Goldberg. His website, philipgoldberg.com. Philip, you have a term that you use. It's called spiritually sane. Lord knows we could use some of that now. (laughs) So would you tell us what do you mean by spiritually sane? Well, you know, it was a clever uh, contrast to the crazy times that we live in, and that, you know, was uh, part of the title of my book, uh, because, you know, it's so easy to get caught up, as you said so many uh, times earlier in our conversation, uh, by what's going on around us and all the influences that are bombarding us and impinging on our inner uh, stability. So maintaining some sanity, maintaining a clarity of thought, maintaining evenness of, of uh, mood and uh, maintaining a sense of, of, of peace and equilibrium inside uh, so that we're not buffeted around and uh, victims of uh, all the the madness around us, and have the opportunity, therefore, to, in our own small way or in a big way, whoever, depending on who we are, to contribute and make things a little better out there. I've had people say to me, you know, we'd be in a huge upheaving situation, (laughs) and they say, you're like the calm in the center of a storm. I like to even sit close to you because it rubs off. Okay. So how much, how much of our sitting in the center of our true nature of our sanctuary then moves out into the world around us through whatever medium? In my experience, the deep spiritual practices such as meditation, and I, I'm a big advocate of deep meditation uh, on a regular basis to, for, for sustenance and ongoing maintenance of our well-being, um, it tends to stick with us and then dissipate. You know, like, you know, we shower and then, you know, we get dirty again. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and things happen. But over time... The, the nervous system starts to be conditioned to maintain some of that inner peace and that clarity of the mind and the expansiveness of consciousness that comes in meditation. It, it tends to stick to you more. And of course, you're still going to be affected by what's outside you. And sometimes you lose it and you say, whatever happened, I've been meditating 10 years and but then what the research shows, and it's borne out in my personal experience with hundreds of interviews over time in my own life, what happens over time is you may lose that equanimity or you know, equilibrium in the moment, but you recover it more quickly. That's the value of regular practice because our inner nature is already at peace. It is already untouched by all these things. So the more we bring out that part of ourselves and infuse it into, you know, the, the world that we inhabit and the, the work we do, the family life and everything else, the more we affect the environment in a good way, but the more also we have this uh, built-in uh, self-protection of access to our own inner nature. 
I like the way you call it self-protection because one of the things that's characterizing our time is there is no sanctuary outside of us anymore. It's very difficult to find a peaceful environment. And the more things get, you know, hyped up and people get angry, it, I just feel it moving into the ethers, if you will. It does. How, and, but there and, are, right. if I may, there are still places there are sacred places out there, and it's difficult now during the pandemic because you know you you can't just you know go to the uh, vacant church or the uh, museum or you know all these public places. In many uh, places, you can't even go to the the public parks or the woods. But in ordinary circumstances, we do have access to places that can offer some temporary refuge. I have a whole chapter on this in but the now book. That we, now that we don't have access to that as readily, um, do you have any advice for building it within our environment? Yes, I do. I, I have a whole thing in, in the uh, section in the book for creating sacred space in your home. And and there's, and if, look, any, any chair, any place to sit can become a sacred space. If you don't have access to the woods, you know, your bedroom will do. Uh, if you don't have access to the churches and temples, uh, your, your porch or your uh, living room will have to do. And if you, if you hold it, those places in a sacred way and perhaps supplement it with symbols, with candles, with thing, by symbols I mean symbols of something that's sacred to you, whatever that may be, uh, a portrait of a saint, uh, you know, a, a religious symbol, uh, aren't these, anything. Aren't these times really telling us that the sanctuary needs to come from within us? Outwards, we've all always looked for it from the outside, you know, a yes. church, a woods. I, I love the woods. I love the country, but but ultimately, isn't this a time that we need to turn that around and bring it from within us into our environment, everywhere we go? Absolutely, and that is always the case. It's always an inside job. At the same time, some places, you know, help us do that, and so we go to them when we can. We take, we take refuge, you know, in a hike in the woods. We have our favorite place to meditate. We have our congregation, whatever it is. So we, the, the outer environment can enhance that inner thing. But you're absolutely right. The key and the priority is to bring it from the inside out. You know, we're being confronted by a lot of fear, and fear drives us out of our front brain, where logic, compassion, and spirituality reside, into our back brain of fight or flight and aggression. What tools can you offer to help a person re-enter the front brain? Well, we've been talking about them. You know, deep meditation, all the physical practices associated with yoga, the breathing, all of these things can help do that. But at the, the other thing is... Um, reframing what's going on. If we're in fear, if we're in worry, if we're in anger, these things are toxic. They disrupt our, our access to our uh, inner sanctuary. They flood the body with terrible chemicals that lead to illness. They weaken the nervous system and the immune system. And so it's to our advantage to, if we can, flip and reframe a fearful state of mind uh, into something more optimistic 
and more calming. And there's methods for doing that. This is an old yogic technique, but it's also being employed by cognitive psychologists all the time. Reframing from negative thought to positive thought. But it has to be done in, a, in an authentic way. You can't trick the subconscious into believing something that's not believable. If yes, when you, when you go, that's another thing I want to bring up is, you know, there's this fine line between viewing the positive side of things, reframing and just going into denial. Exactly um, right. How do you tell which one you're doing? <laughs> no, it's exactly right. And you can't, you know, you can't do that. Look, if you're looking at the television screen at some politician you hate, who you think is, is causing problems in the world and making people suffer. You, you can't say, I, well, this hatred is hurting me. I'm going to pretend to love this person. It, you know, it just doesn't work that way. But you can flip it from that rage reaction to something more calming, like being indignant, being, ha having what we, we call righteous indignation. Being morally outraged in a calm way is, and then saying, what can I do about this? And if you, if you reframe it as, oh, this is a terrible, frightening situation, oh my God, to, okay, there's something serious going on here. What steps can I take to mitigate this? Then you're reframing it in a way that can lead to constructive action and in the immediate context produces different neurochemistry. You know, fear tends to drive us into anger and anxiety. Can anger be channeled constructively as a spiritual practice? I think so. And that, that has a lot to do with what I just said. And if you look at you know, people think of spirituality as an escape thing, an escape mechanism, and, you know, people disconnecting from the world to be spiritual, you know, monks or whatever. No. Well, that's the denial it, piece, right? That's the, well, it, yes, or, the, you know, the renunciate piece, which is a, a fine thing for, you know, a small fraction of humanity is called to that sort of monastic life. But most of us are in the world, and there's a place for spiritual activism and, and the role that indignation and uh, anger can have, even in a spiritual context, we forget sometimes that some of the, the world's great uh, figures of social transformation, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, the recently deceased John Lewis, Nelson Mandela, these are people you know, Jesus himself, for that matter, uh, these are people who um, were deeply, deeply spiritual and got angry at conditions around them, got indignant and channeled their spiritual impulse into action that helped the world. Like and we can, over, we can like do the same. Over like turning over the tables in the uh, church yeah. that was being used to, for marketing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So and you, you've, said that w you've said that with privilege comes responsibility. Would you please go into that a little bit? I think those of us who are even able to listen to this program and who are able to, who have the, the time, the space, the inclination to engage in the spiritual practices that I write about in my book, to uh, have the, the blessing of even knowing 
that the true nature of, of the self is peace and, and that we can access it. This is a privilege. And, and if we're in this time and we are not threatened with the loss of our home or the loss of our lives or the loss of a loved one to COVID or, you know, being destitute, if, if all we're dealing with is inconvenience, then we are deeply privileged. And one spiritual practice that comes out of that is we should feel grateful. And if we can also take the responsibility to in some way help those who are not so privileged, then we are engaging in the spiritual practice of service, which is also good for us as well as other, other human beings. Service and gratitude, beautiful things. We have less than a minute left. Uh, during these you know, crazy times, what's the most important advice you can give Mission Evolution's worldwide audience? Find deep spiritual practices that work for you and do them regularly, not as a luxury, but as a smart investment of time for your ongoing spiritual sustenance and nurture. And you feel that this will also then impact the people around us and the world at large? Absolutely. It will do so automatically because if you're peaceful, you will spread that into into your interactions with other people. And it will also give you a strong foundation should you decide you want to make an active contribution to make the world a little more sane. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, Philip, we are out of time. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom. It was a pleasure, Gwilda. Thank you for having me. Our guest this hour has been Philip Goldberg, the author or co-author of 20 books, including American Veda, The Life of Yogalanda, and Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. His website, philipgoldberg.com. Remember, our entire information-packed past episode collection is available for listen or download free of charge. Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. This has been Mission Evolution with Wilda Wiecka on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Join us next time as this mission continues, bringing information, resources, and support to this crazy world. 